Hello, I'm so happy to welcome you back for season two of Back to Life. My name's Millie, I'm a DJ broadcaster and trainee therapist, which is new since season one, and I'm sure you're going to hear more about it over the coming weeks. Talking of season one, well, it's been a minute, life got really busy, parenting a toddler, working DJing, studying, and through it all, continuing on my own healing journey. I'm someone who's in long-term recovery for many years now from mental health challenges and chronic addiction, and the work to stay well doesn't stop. I was blown away by the support that you guys showed the pod, seriously overwhelmed by how many people got in touch to say they'd listened, that it had resonated with them, that it had helped them in some way. If you haven't listened before, then Back to Life is a podcast about healing and creativity. I talk to people about how they've come back to life after the darkness. And this season, I'm on a mission to open up the conversation about mental health and addiction within the world of electronic music, a world very close to my heart that I've inhabited and felt affiliated to throughout my life. We're going to be having some pretty intimate conversations with DJs and artists who are courageously speaking out, challenging stigma, affecting positive change, and using their experience to help others. Vulnerability is the birthplace of creativity, and healing is a creative and collaborative process that I'm endlessly fascinated by. We all have different routes through, we all have different challenges, but we also have so much in common and so much that we can learn from each other. I truly believe that stories shape the way that we see the world, and they can bring about a shift in perspective, which is a vital step to making change in our own lives and in other people's lives. My hope is that some of these conversations will be a catalyst for change. Which brings me quite neatly to today's guest, someone who's really open and eloquent about her own experience of addiction and recovery. She talks about it a lot in the music that she makes and in interviews. And she is an incredible, very distinct and prolific artist. She's also an amazing, insightful, engaging and fearless podcast host. So no pressure here. Of course, it's Louisa. That's Louisa with three H's. She has a podcast that she hosts called Sober Sex, which does what it says on the tin, really. talks about sex in sobriety, but also a whole lot more. It talks about the whole experience of recovery and healing and what it is to be human. I'm a longtime fan, and I would recommend it to anyone with an interest in any of that stuff. Louisa has recently moved from being known predominantly for DJing, producing, to working and touring with a live band. She's an absolutely incredible frontwoman and vocalist, and she released her debut album last year called The Practice of Freedom, which, if you haven't heard it already, you're in for a treat. It's brilliant. And... I love the album and I loved the title and the meaning that I took from that. So this was our first topic of conversation, the practice of freedom. The title came from um, the author Bell Hooks, who's like a black feminist uh, writer and academic. And she talks a lot about education as the practice of freedom, like the art of kind of being a teacher and connecting with students and um, the idea of teaching to transgress, which I find also another kind of really inspiring concept, this idea that like we liberate each other when we get free. And so 
it's like as a prismatic meeting, not only because a lot of my work comes from uh, themes surrounding, you know, addiction and uh, alcoholism, which is very much about freedom, like how free do I want to be in this life, you know, especially when I deal with a mental illness um, that takes place surrounding substance abuse, uh, kind of obsession and compulsion to self-annihilate. The other part is is that it's very strongly inspired around um, dominance and submission and kind of sexual dynamics. And so this idea of a practice of freedom being not only one that's about kind of liberation, but also one that's about constraint and the, the freedom that we can find within constraining circumstance. Um, and I'm happy to kind of like, those are, that can be a spider web kind of, of, of meeting. So I'm happy to, to branch off in, in any direction you're curious about. What you were saying about freedom in recovery, I think it's like really, it's kind of really pertinent, isn't it? For me, like drugs was the promise of freedom. That's what it promised. And that's what it seemed to deliver. But that now through recovery, finding freedom, freedom isn't what I thought it was. And I was wondering <laughs> yeah. about your experience with that I guess personally yourself yeah I mean it's definitely like a big theme in my life and in my work and like I remember I was in a 12-step meeting and there was like a nun who said that freedom is being easy in your harness and I think that that's kind of it like the more willing I am to kind of show up for the stuff that I don't particularly like or just to be kind of uncomfortable like the more liberation I have in my life as a whole a lot of my lived daily practice has to do with kind of hyperstructure and like a little bit of probably psycho rigidity around like the boxes I tick in order to kind of stay sane and sober for another day, which at this point doesn't feel like I take great pleasure in, (laughs) in, in the discipline, you know, in like the morning pages and the prayer and meditation and working with others, (laughs) like working out, like doing all the, the stuff that supports my mental health and my recovery. But I think from another standpoint, it could be like, oh my God, like (laughs) you have to work so hard to be free. And I'm like, yeah, but I enjoy it. So no complaints. I definitely remember having that kind of light bulb moment that actually doing lots of things that I didn't want to do was actually a really good thing to do. And I'd spent my life kind of trying to avoid doing all those things I didn't want to do. I was like, oh, yeah, this is what being a grown up is, basically. And it took me quite a long time, took me quite a long time to uh, have that particular revelation. You mentioned about BDSM and I did read an interview with you that spoke about how kind of discovering BDSM for you led to a deeper ability to connect and a greater capacity for love. And I thought that was so interesting and I'd love to hear more about that. Yeah, of course. I mean, you know, and I'm quite open about it because I feel like right now um, feminine sexuality especially um, and uh, femme bodies are really kind of under fire. And so I think it's really important to talk about the feminine erotic and, um, to be as open, like transparent and, and loving as possible in that message, because for a long time, like I didn't really connect with that part of myself and what, in, in what felt like a meaningful way, unless it was a little bit toxic, <laughs> you know, even in recovery. So to kind of discover that, like, there was something um, divine and creative and empowering in accepting and exploring that part of myself in relationship was really uh, was really mind blowing and kind of like unlocked a lot of uh, 
power and inspiration and creativity. I think it, it gave me a lot of clarity around like attachment stuff in terms of instead of kind of oscillating in a kind of quote unquote disorganized attachment between, you know, anxious and avoidant because like this like please love me and then when I kind of receive love I'm like ugh get away from me or being only attracted to kind of unavailable people, which felt very unsafe and kind of heartbreaking a lot of the time. This idea of having really specific communicated parameters uh, was super, super helpful and empowering and liberating. And also the idea that like this part of me is as loved by what I call God. I mean, like it's like a God, it's a very loose, you know, 12 step God concept. <laughs> it's not, not, no, nothing to do with religion, but th- this part of me was very like loved by my higher power that like, there, there was nothing unacceptable, you know, about this, <laughs> this like kinky perverted side. And that in fact, like the more I accepted it, the, the less shadow it kind of contained. And so the healthier it was, which was really lovely. That's so interesting. I'm doing a course in integrative counseling and we were just doing about gestalt uh, therapy (laughs) last night and I I, was all quite new to me but it was all about that kind of inviting those dark parts of yourself in in order to be healthy and the more that we reject them the more that we're distressed and did this correlate with the starting your podcast which is called fuck fuck yeah sober sex or is it just called sober (laughs) sex because on it's just sober sex okay Instagram is is fuck yeah sober sex (laughs) okay yeah so we started sober sex like during the pandemic because um my dear friend and co-host Rose and I were, she had started a podcast called Bloody Hell, of which there was one episode and it kind of turns into sober sex. Um, But, you know, I feel like it's very easy within recovery, especially, but like kind of globally to pathologize uh, sexuality that might not be the most kind of vanilla or easy to talk about, um, especially in kind of mixed circles. (sighs) That it's 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 people you know will go to sex and love addicts anonymous or it becomes kind of like a another thing to fix you know and it I try I didn't try and fix mine for a long time I, I just felt kind of disconnected from it and thought that this part of me was kind of off limits in sobriety and then when I discovered it wasn't because I ended up like uh, the story is I basically like hooked up with somebody I'd known in recovery for a long time um, and who I respected very much and felt very safe around and they turned out to be like a a total like kinkster <laughs> and it I, and so this part of me was kind of a lot accept, invited and accepted and released and um and that was so liberating and so exciting and fun and I just wanted to this message of like we don't have many places to talk about this stuff in recovery so to have conversations with you know sober and not sober people or like a lot of you know kind of people coming from the sexual health background or talking about embodiment and authenticity and how these things all connect like recovery addiction mental health creativity embodiment authenticity sexuality gender like it's a it's a really fun Venn diagram of of um of possible topics on sober sex <laughs> It's such a huge thing because I talk a lot about women and recovery and their experience. And I think, you know, so many women, if not like the vast majority, basically have all experienced sexual trauma to some extent. I mean, so many women in the general population have. And then when you take the the population of women who've had kind of problems with substances, then 
you know, that figure sort of goes up again. So there's like, so there's all that kind of shame as well. I can remember kind of my first sort of sexual relationship in recovery and it being like being a virgin all over again. I didn't have any substance to hide behind. Intimacy was terrifying. All the previous experiences I'd had had either been completely numb um, or had been traumatic. And then I was like suddenly, you know, with look, it was in a loving relationship and I just was like, I felt so kind of exposed and raw and yeah, very difficult to talk about. So I think it's like a vital service that you're doing there, just bringing that topic to light. We're so excited about it. And thank you so much for sharing that because, you know, it does take vulnerability to talk about this stuff. Yeah, I'd love to hear about your experience of of getting into recovery and getting, we've kind of kind of jumped ahead now, like getting right into the program, but I'd love (laughs) to hear about how you, how you got into recovery um, and, and kind of what was going on that led you to, to get into it. I went very swiftly from being kind of like a very good kid, you know, only child, like riding horses competitively, obsessed with music, like doing very active and engaged and and kind of a nerd horse girl to like um, very swiftly, like discovering nightlife and feeling like I had found my people. And from there, within, you know, months um, was a total cocaine demon. (laughs) And, um, you know, I, I, when I first came in, especially, I had a lot of like anxiety about not being qualified enough to kind of get sober yet. Cause I got sober when I was 20 via intervention and a long stint in rehab. But I mean, the truth was, is that like, yes, I was definitely powerless over, over cocaine. I mean, my life was totally unmanageable. And that, you know, it was coming up like I was unable to kind of have a healthy relationship. The people I loved were really worried about me. I was really dishonest with them. I had spent all of my rent money perpetually on drugs. And it couldn't, like my, my body was starting to get falling apart. And I was, you know, getting, I was quite scared for myself and for my own mental health just because I felt so far from who I knew myself to be. And so... My family and friends threw me a surprise party <laughs> and told me that if they, I didn't accept their invitation to rehab, that uh, I would no longer be part of their lives. But my disease was very much arrested in that moment because I have a, an intense family history of, of alcoholism and addiction. And so from there, I spent about nine months in treatment. And um, they told me that whatever I put in front of my recovery, I would lose. But if I, if I put my recovery first, that I could have anything in this world besides drugs and alcohol, essentially, that I could go anywhere in freedom. That's amazing. Um, I'm really interested in, uh, first of all, like the idea of your family intervening. I'm just really interested in like why you think that worked. For me, I think there was a lot of divinity in this moment, like literally... The day before my intervention, I had tried to stop and couldn't stop, you know, like, um, so it, it came at just like the exact right time. Like shit had been kind of going haywire for a while, <laughs> but like, you know, there's always this conviction that like, okay, I'll stop. And then by like 3 PM that afternoon, you're like, actually, I meant <laughs> like not spending that much money on drugs or not doing drugs with those people in these circumstances or not mixing these drugs. Like, you know, all the lines in the stand getting kind of drawn farther away, which I was very familiar with. And this is the first time I was like, okay, 
I ha- I can't do this. There was like a crack in the door of willingness and I, it was perfect, you know, and um, that was really, that was ideal. But they, you know, to be honest, they also worked with an interventionist, which I would highly recommend if anybody can afford that. But the process is, is quite beautiful. And like, I think, again, this idea, so your family writes you letters about how your disease is hurting them and how much they love you and what the consequences are across the board, you know, from friends and family and people who are close to you, who care about you, who have consequences if you don't take their offer of treatment, which usually involves kind of being cut off somehow, either from love or financial support or communication. And it was really effective. And I feel like the, it was definitely like the easier, softer way, if you will, like the the person who my family worked with was this woman, Heather Hayes, who we've had uh, as a guest on Sober Sex 16 years later. <laughs> and uh, That must have been emotional. Oh, my God, we both cried. But yeah. just, yeah, this idea she was the right person. Like, I feel like for me, the whole thing was very, uh, I don't know if it would have worked if it happened in any other way. And thank God I didn't have to find out. Amazing. And how long have you been um, clean for? It's been since May 1st, 2006. So it's been a minute. <laughs> It's been really nice to kind of see the cultural shifts around uh, alcoholism and addiction within our industry, you know, recently, including shows like this. And the I just I love alcoholics and addicts very, very much. So <laughs> it's a real pleasure to get to to carry that message and to be a part of like trying to be helpful to others who suffer from this thing. It is an incredible gift. And of course, you want to pass it on. But yeah, but the example as well that um you know, indirectly, that people just see you just being you, just living your life, like making albums, doing gigs, working with bands, like, you know, being fulfilled creatively and, yeah, and and just and doing all that sober um, is an incredible, incredible thing for all that time. And I think one of the most amazing things about your story is showing that, you know, people, A, can get sober and clean young and that they can stay sober and clean and they don't have to relapse you know that's not like my story but I think I I love the fact that it it's your story but I think all you know there a toolbox filled with hammers is kind of useless so the more stories that we have within the rooms of recovery the more effective we can be so it's like no no value judgments but yeah it's been it's been a good trip (laughs) yeah I hope to stay on it how was that being young being in your early 20s and being clean and and being in the music industry (laughs) like those three things I I think I had to get very clear on like what I was doing there like what my purpose was and um to find out for myself whether I was in club spaces because I loved music or whether, whether I was in club spaces because I liked to, I wanted to get loaded. And I remember I got like, uh, when I was in sober living after like six months of inpatient, I got a, uh, like a, an evening pass to go see Junior Sanchez at the, at the stone stone room or something in LA. And I like went by myself and it was like, kind of a lame gig but like I remember like crying on the dance floor because I was so happy to be back in that environment and to know that it wasn't just the drugs and to be like (laughs) to be like God wants me to be a DJ (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> and uh, and it's it's easy to forget that, you know, to be like, oh, God, another plane ride. But like the ferocious um, desire, especially when everybody in my life was like, please, can you choose another career path? Literally anything else like we would support you doing any like you could drive race car, like you could do anything. But please don't DJ you like 20 year old cocaine addict to us like a day of sobriety. Yeah. And I think like actually what you're touching on is kind of does lead quite nicely into kind of what I was going to talk about. I think I'd love to hear like common misconceptions that you come up against and how you kind of explain them, I guess. I think the number one thing is that it's going to be boring. You know, that I, I, you know, when I came in, especially as a young person, I was like, I am going to be like a nun who has to like be an accountant. Should I have to like, I learn math <laughs> and like, and instead it's this, you know, and, and that everybody would be boring. And instead it's like party in graduate school <laughs> that like we could no longer party. So we are here. We've graduated from that stage of our development. And then the ones I get a lot are that it's somehow like a self-help program that has to do with like fixing you based on willpower. <laughs> like, oh, you're so strong. And it's like, no, I mean, I heard that, you know, it's not it's not a self-improvement program. It's a self-acceptance program. And, and also that if there's any kind of organization. I think one of the most beautiful things about mutual aid societies is that it's a benevolent anarchy and that there's like literally nobody in charge ever. <laughs> Um, and if you ever need a good example of democracy in action, come to a 12-step fellowship business meeting because they are chaos. It's the best. And you get such a kind of interesting mix and cross-section of people. And what you were saying about misconceptions about recovery, I can remember when I heard about being free from sort of selfishness was the goal. I, I literally thought that meant that I could never have anything nice in my life ever again. And like you were saying about being a nun, like I was like, I literally was imagining <laughs> myself kind of in a sackcloth, like living in some kind of monastery, some kind of monastic <laughs> existence. And yeah, it's not that. It's not oh. that. The theme of this work is the joy of good living. And what good living means is now very different than I thought it would mean, you know. Yeah. But it's like happy and stable relationships and feeling like free to go anywhere in the world and not kind of be powerless over my own compulsion to self-destroy. Did you have a very profound experience when you went through the steps for the first time? I feel like it's been kind of cumulative. And I will say that the more kind of profound awakening, like the promises of kind of feeling safety and comfort and like freedom in my own, in my own skin really started to happen more when I started taking other people through the work, which is kind of the 12th step is working with others. The, the compassion that I felt for the people that I got to take through the work really informed my own level of self-compassion because like nothing that they could possibly do or say was like unacceptable. I mean, like if they could tell me some really fucked up shit, I would just be like, I love you so much. Me too. <laughs> and so the idea of kind of turning against myself as violently as I had been, especially again, like deep within recovery seemed less and less tenable. You know, that seemed like some kind of hypocrisy. And yeah, I mean, it's a beautiful, it's just like, it's a beautiful way to live. And mm. you're, you're really open about your recovery, um, which I love. For me, I almost had like a coming out point in my recovery where I was like, right, I'm going to tell people. Uh, I'm not going to keep this quiet anymore because it was felt like I was compartmentalizing myself and hiding mm. something that was such a huge integral part of who I was. So how was that for you? 
partially because I got sober so young, it was very important for me to be kind of very vocal in um, in my sobriety, not so much like how I was recovering, but just to like let people know, for, for me to kind of create a bubble around myself where it was like not cool to offer me drinks or drugs. <laughs> and if people did, then I had people around me who knew, who I was felt like accountable to, you know, who I didn't want to disappoint. And also like, if I'm doing this thing and if I'm trying to be like one with my word, then I've already, I've said it aloud, you know, there are no way, there are like, uh, there's no way out of this without being a hypocrite and like betraying myself on a, on a broad scale. <laughs> and it wasn't specifically around sobriety. It was around um, somebody coming out as a, as a trans person, but that they had this epiphany that really saved their lives. That was like, I'm not carrying shame anymore. I refuse. Fuck you. You carry it. I'm not holding that shit. Recovery is, it's like those layers, isn't it? It's weird because I also have like a memory, like long before I actually got and got sober for any amount of time, but I remember someone talking about that. Not really even sort of like knowing that much about what shame was, but just thinking that sounds amazing. But talk to me about kind of your creative recovery if I can say that that's a really good question because I do think that they're very linked because um, I think so much of the theme of of any kind of recovery you know be, be it from addiction or or within any realm of like self-acceptance and healing is this idea of like if you're not kind of living into your truth then it there's a possible danger there and so for me like the the creative recovery feels like it's in um it took a really long time because I've had a lot of like anxiety around showing people how much I wanted this part, you know, and for me, this part that I've been like secretly nurturing since like the age of nine was to have a band and to kind of be a front woman. And so kind of moving from DJing to songwriting, to producing and releasing music to now to doing vocals on, on those productions and uh, now to kind of fronting a band, <laughs> like this has been the this very slow journey to to kind of realizing that part, being kind of allowed to embody that space as a performer. And it's recent, you know, it's like kind of since COVID that this has been happening, kind of surrounding this this record, the practice of freedom. And like, <laughs> I'd be a hypocrite if I wasn't kind of ready to to you know put my money where my mouth was and to really like show up and perform as such. It reminds me of a quote, which I'm not sure where the quote comes from, but there's no, I think it might be Glennon Doyle, that there's no such thing as one-way liberation. So when you liberate yourself, you kind of give permission to others to do so. So how has it been kind of working with a band? Because that's quite a different process. Having watched friends in bands, it feels like that's a whole other dynamic in terms of like, it's a very close, intense community, isn't it? I mean, yeah, but at the same time, like I, f- I found DJing very like quite destructive for my mental health in terms of the all the kind of alone time, um, traveling and just feeling kind of solitary. Very much like you know they say, hungry, angry, lonely, tired. <laughs> it's very like lonely, tired, lonely, tired, lonely, tired. And so that idea of like getting to travel with my best friends, <laughs> like in a gang, it just like everything feels like vacation all the time. But I mean, again, like. They're kind enough to, you know, show up and, and support me in, in playing the songs that I, I made. And, like, that's definitely, like, been a lesson in how to kind of 
how to not be an egomaniac about that and how to take my like self-centeredness out of it and really kind of hear people when they're like, hey, I don't feel supported or, you know, I need some more credit or I need some more money and be like, okay, like that's totally valid to have people who show up and support me and my work. Like it's been a very humbling lesson and like how to kind of make that reciprocal and worthwhile for them, you know? Do you feel like this is the way forward for you then now kind of band life? So unfortunately, like heartbreakingly for me, (laughs) like I think that there's going to be a a period of depression, but we only have three shows left for kind of this tour, um, which will be done uh, in late October. And so I'm, I'm fearing the kind of emotional fallout because I love, I love this so much. It's like been such a wonderful lesson in, uh, in access to the present, you know, and, and ferocious, courageous love. Uh, in real time, screaming. But, you know, like, because it's been so awesome and because I'm deeply unwilling to, like, go back to just DJing, the next kind of project is also a duo that involves live vocals and running around <laughs> venues like a maniac with a microphone. So it's it's definitely, like, the, the theme of the future is uh, never be alone <laughs> and, like, shout as much as possible. <laughs> <laughs> so that's what we're going for moving forward so we're talk- talking a little bit about mental health in the industry and in music industry I know you said earlier that you you know it feels like conversations are happening more but yeah I was wondering how you kind of see see things at the moment in terms of like the state of the mental health of the industry I mean I think it's awesome that you know we're having conversations about this stuff and I do really appreciate that you're definitely one of the voices who's really like engaging people around this specific to our industry um and I do my best to do the same I think you know we had this really an insane opportunity with COVID to have a real hard reset around like diversity and inclusion mental health like the Me Too movement and what that looks like and how we can kind of heal uh, our environmental footprint as the electronic music industry. Like there's a lot we can we can look at and try and do better at, you know. And so on one hand, it's really awesome that, you know, there's initiatives like the Beatport Mental Health live streaming stuff. And, you know, I think that Music Cares in America does an amazing job in terms of getting people treatment for both addiction and mental health issues. But, you know, at the same time, I still feel like there's so much work to do and that it has to really be ongoing. Like when I look at the kind of the fear that can drive big festivals, for instance, to like book the same, you know, 20 acts over and over again. And like the kind of economic anxiety surrounding making money back post-COVID or whatever, to be sure of ticket sales, et cetera, that like... That stuff is deeply disheartening. And I think it, you know, on one hand, we had nothing but live streams for like at least a year and a half. So there's a lot more kind of, uh, there's a lot new face of new faces on the scene that feels really exciting. And on the other hand, it's like, okay, but where, where is the, <laughs> where's the financial recompensation uh, for this? Like who's getting paid? I guess the issue is like globally capitalism, <laughs> but, you know, I think that like, we can, we can address this as an industry and start to talk about kind of solutions-based uh, 
initiatives that can hopefully help continue these conversations in something beyond like performative talking points. Like people are killing themselves and it's like, yeah, because <laughs> it's like deeply insecure. And when it's not insecure, it's like lonely and exhausting. Like, how do we make it better? <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. Just on that last point, I mean, we were saying about kind of that opportunity for learning. It was kind of crazy because as soon as everything was back, within a couple of months, all I was hearing was like, burnout, burnout, burnout. It's kind of like trying to make up for lost time. And I think that's something that I've learned about in recovery. You can't essentially make up for lost time. You have to accept the time has gone and make the best of the time you do have. And I think that, sorry, that the like FOMO of that is activating when you see everybody else like back to it and you're like I feel kind of uncomfortable with that but like will my career suffer if I'm not back to it like everybody else and like I feel shitty about myself because like this person has 19 dates in October and I only have six that part I think is really detrimental like how the social media aspect of it really affects kind of how we perform success again you know it's it's a it's pervasive and really damaging what's your relationship like with social media and how do you kind of work your program around that I guess because it's it's a toxic nightmare what can I tell you it's a whole other thing definitely (laughs) like I have I try and I put screen time limits on it which are very liberal and I still manage to go over them most days but I try and respect them (laughs) Like only two hours a day. And that's like, that's crazy. Like that's your life. Imagine what else you could be doing. (laughs) Um, But kind of being out in the middle of nowhere where the internet's not that good and trying to do things that kind of really are like, feel like deep work that absorb, you know, full attention has been, has made my brain feel better at least and less kind of activated by what other people are doing but I think the part of it too is like it's designed to make us feel bad about ourselves because you're like oh I should spend less time on the phone and it's like you know it's designed to like steal your attention pervasively yeah (laughs) like it's not through personal shortcoming it's through it's by design Mm. literally like it's your attention thief yeah it's kind of scary and it's socially acceptable you know it's like it's a true nightmare (laughs) Yeah, <laughs> socially, but you know, I mean, and, and and at the same time, it's like, okay, anything, you know, whatever we can be addicted to can either be like the, a weapon for our destruction or a tool. And I do think mm. that like, to use it as a tool for connection and to like, thank God for, you know, my phone and for Instagram and like airports when I'm alone and just feeling like miserable to have a place to kind of soften mm. that. And, like, do some healthy disassociation so I don't totally, like, have a fucking meltdown in Terminal 2 or whatever. But also to stay connected and to, like, to know that there's a world of people who are awake when I'm awake. And who can kind of, like, hold space and connection as opposed to just feeling, like, super, super alone and lonely. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, like, yeah, I've definitely had some made some amazing friends and had some amazing opportunities um I think it's yeah we just need to kind of it's again it's like working out the relationship with it isn't it and actually like being able to hold the platforms to account which would be good that would be good really yeah (laughs) yes please kind of a weird place to ask you but I wanted to ask you um I should have probably asked you this at the very beginning but I wanted to ask you about your kind of early experiences with rave and kind of you know how you why why and how you felt kind of drawn to that particular scene I'd really grown up in a very musical environment and that my dad was in the music business for a long time and it was kind of our sole point of like emotional connection like (laughs) even now we're not very good at talking about feelings but like 
we can communicate through music, um, which is really special. And, you know, to like not to get too Freudian because he was misogynist and a drug addict, but <laughs> this idea of like, oh, of course, like everything I do is to kind of like win my dad's love, you know, <laughs> be like, dad, I exist. So growing up in that environment and going to a lot of shows uh, in New York when I was, uh, you know, a teenager, I remembered kind of discovering nightlife through a, a boy and had started going to like dance parties that were very much like an open format mismatch of, of music that uh, was happening in New York at the time. So it was everything from like LCD sound system and all the DFA stuff to uh, Ratatat and Yeah Yeah Yeahs and Interpol and The Strokes, kind of like more rock and roll stuff to like Missy Elliott and Kelly's and like fun rap. It was irresistible, you know, it was felt so cool. And it felt like part of a tradition of subcultures, as you say, that was like everything from like Warhol and the factory to like Patti Smith and like the Ramones. And it just felt like finally I'd found my people from going from like being kind of a weird outcast to like feeling like, oh my God, like these people get the references I've been making this whole time. And like, these people are like, we can go out, you know, six nights a week. Uh, and every night is the sickest party and so much fun and so much dancing. And like, it felt so magical. And I felt like I had found like my place. I felt cool for the first time in my life, especially on cocaine, which is, you know, the cool drug, <laughs> very annoying. Um, but also that I, you know, had kind of stumbled into paradise where it, it felt really creative and, and exciting and ecstatic. And yeah, it was like, who could resist? You know, it was so awesome. <laughs> so that was New York circa like 2003, 2004. And, uh, and I like, I had always been drawn to the kind of more electronic side of American alternative rock. So like Nine Inch Nails or Garbage or Smashing Pumpkins, like rock music with drum machine elements. And that kind of um, led me to this this place. In the programme, we're told not to give advice, but to share our experience. Um, So... But we do give a lot of advice. But we do. But then, yeah, paradoxically, we give shitloads of advice all the time. Suggestions based on my personal experience. I'll give you that. Okay. Can you give me some suggestions for the for any audience, anyone who's listening who might be struggling, wondering about their relationship with drugs or alcohol? Yeah, if I can come in, like, hey, slide up in my DMs if you have any questions about the unnamed 12-step fellowship that we keep referencing, <laughs> very specifically. <laughs> but, but I mean, yeah, check out a 12-step meeting because, A, it's free. It's totally not a cult, even though I joked about that earlier. <laughs> and, like, you, the only thing that you, you have to lose is your misery. You know, like, if you don't like it, you don't have to keep coming back. But if it's, it's, a, it's a great time, trust me. <laughs> Um, and also that like, it doesn't have to, it doesn't have to be a sad, small, boring life. It can be so, so wonderful. That's a beautiful note to end it on. Thank you, Louisa. Not a problem at all. Have fun with the family. Bye. (laughs) Thank you so much to Louisa. I absolutely loved speaking to her. And for anyone who's thinking that giving up substances might mean the end of fun or parties or creativity, 
and lead to a dull and boring life. Well, I think she clearly illustrates that that's just not part of the deal or doesn't have to be. It certainly doesn't have to be. So much respect for her, for her artistry and for her recovery. She does a lot to help people and actually having this conversation was a bit of a kick up the arse for me in terms of like, what am I doing in my recovery? How am I looking after myself? What, where could I be doing more? She's someone who walks the walk as well as talks the talk. And I think that that shines through. Thank you, Louisa. You can find her on Instagram at Louisa with three H's. So some exciting things to tell you about. We are going to be having a back to life party on the 28th of January at the Love Inn in Stokescroft in Bristol. You know, this idea came about because... I just feel like there's a community forming around this podcast and that's so beautiful and lovely for me to experience. You know, the amount of people who've been in touch and dropped me DMs or messages on Facebook or whatever saying that they have enjoyed it, that they've resonated with it or they've shared it to their stories or they've shared it with their friends. So I just thought it would be so lovely to bring that community offline into real life and it feels very appropriate to have a club night for this series as I'm talking mainly to electronic music producers well actually only to electronic music producers and DJs and people working in that field so yeah it feels totally fitting to have a lovely party but more details on that to come soon and also I'm going to be starting a patron for the pod so if you would like to support me if you're able to support me if you saw me in real life and you would offer to buy me a coffee then you can do the equivalent of that online by chucking a few quid our way which helps us to make the podcast continue to make the podcast and just to cover the costs of uh, all that that involves I'd love to keep making this podcast. I'd love to make more feel like it could, you know, it could run and run. And yeah, hopefully you feel the same. And if you're able to support, then please do. I do understand that it's very difficult time financially for many of us. So absolutely understand if financial support is not in the question right now that's okay too but you can support for free by writing a review or giving the podcast a rating on either apple or spotify or wherever you like to listen that really does help it might not feel like it is but it really does help it helps other people to find it and it helps just to give the podcast a bit of validity and potentially in the future we might be able to get some kind of financial sponsorship or something like that all of that stuff could help with that so that is a great help if you can do that thank you for everyone who's taken the time to do that so far and while we're on the thank yous i just want to say thank you to the brilliant george powell who's helping me with the production and editing of these this podcast just couldn't have happened without him he's an absolute legend and thank you of course for listening and for all the support and i am excited to see you in a couple of weeks so yeah until then take care